three Sundays in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm calling it soul shaping. How the New Testament preaches to Christians. This morning, make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 to 11. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 to 11. For if these qualities, and I'll, I'll just point back in a minute so you see what we're talking about there. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. It's the only kind of Christianity that the New Testament knows about. Ushers are coming. We'll receive offering at this time. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a knowledge, there's a kind of knowledge. See this? Got a different color. If There's a kind of knowledge, but it's, it's this, ineffective, and it's that, it's unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities, so he's repeating what he said there, is so nearsighted that he is blind. I'm not talking about physical blindness. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Strange that that can be forgotten. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, this way is this. It's practicing these things. In this way, there will be richly provided for you so he's not talking about doing away with grace. It's, a, it's provided for you. And yet you have to practice. That it's, it's interesting the way he does that. There will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. May we never lose sight of the fact that every time we open up your word, God talks to us. Our creator, our redeemer, talks to us in this spirit-inspired text. Sometimes we sit while someone else is talking and we don't pay attention, but surely that's a great sin when God is speaking to us. And so we're not texting, we're not emailing, we're, we're bowing before your word now. Come, Lord Jesus, great shepherd of the church, that phrase as we close the book of Hebrews, the shepherd of the flock, and shepherd our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said we're going to spend three Sunday mornings in the first chapter of Second Peter. For if these qualities, you see that in verse 8, and to make sense of that, you really have to at least read. We're not, we're not pausing over these verses much, but here's the qualities he's talking about. Right before verse 8, 5, 6, and 7... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So you have faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, 
Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Those are the qualities he's, he's talking about. When someone says, I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to, you know, in order to get what I'm saying, you're going to have to work very hard. I want to say something to you, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to make every effort. Can you see that color up there? I guess it's okay. Yeah? It's not great, but it's okay. You're going to have to make every effort. You, you know when someone says that, that, that he's assuming you're not going to immediately feel like doing what he says. Right? I, I never had to, when, we, when the girls were little, we left the house, you never had to say, please make every effort to eat the chips and cake before we come home. No, you'd say now. Make every effort, you make sure that all the homework's done before anybody watches any TV. Make every effort to get the homework done. And when you say make every effort, you're assuming a measure of at least inward resistance. That's why you have to, verse 5 says, make every effort. So in verses 8 through 11, Peter gives these people uh, encouragement. He's telling them to make every effort to do these things in 5, 6, and 7. And then 8, 9, 10, and 11, he says, now, here's, here's why. Here are the benefits and some warnings. Here's why making every effort is worthwhile. It's important. Those verses right here, 5 through 7, they have nothing to do with earning your standing before God. Nothing whatsoever. Peter has already stated that the Christian's righteousness is a supplied righteousness. If you went back to verse 1 in this chapter, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, he says, to those who have obtained a faith, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, so it's not earning it. It's not, it's not getting it because of all your good works. Well then why do, we, why do we need to make every effort to add to grace freely given to us? What are the reasons, the benefits of making every effort to adding those virtues to our faith. That's what today's text is going to be. Here are the virtues to be added. Make every effort to do it. And now he's going to tell us why we need to do that. So point number one, he says these qualities will keep you from becoming useless and fruitless. It's in that first verse of our text, verse 8. These qualities, that's what we just looked at, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, well, here's what they do. They'll keep you from being two things, ineffective 
or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just submit to you. It takes a pretty high degree of humility to come into a church service like this and to hear those words with an open heart. I mean, I don't, I don't want to think of my Christian life, and you probably don't want to think of your Christian life described with those two adjectives, ineffective and unfruitful. That's, that's hard to take. In fact, we, we get so accustomed to measuring our Christian walk with the Lord by how generous he has been with us. What's the Lord been doing for you lately? And then we give a testimony of what God's been doing for us. We, we don't even think in terms of how useful or how fruitful we have been for him. But that's what Peter's interested in. Peter states the possibility that a Christian can have, he can have this, a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can have that. He's not talking about someone without a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about somebody with the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and he holds up this, this possibility that it can all be useless. That my faith can become all um, just kind of habit, creed, subscription to certain ideas. I hear it all the time from people. They talk about, yes, I believe in Jesus. I'm just not living for him right now. Useless. Think about that in slow motion with me. Ineffective. He, he uses that word Ineffective. So somehow it's not enough for me to hold proper beliefs. I have to be effective in those beliefs. So, so Peter says, I have to catch my mind's attention at least once in a while, humbly, honestly, prayerfully, and say, how useful is my life to God? Do you ever do that? You're successful. Maybe you make a lot of money. How, how useful is your life to God? How, how much of his work, his purpose for this lost world, his kingdom, how much of it is on my shoulders? How much of it am I carrying out? How much of my energy goes into this? How much of my time goes into this? How much of my resource goes into this? Look at that description in verse 8 again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he outlines this horrible contradiction. He, he describes this person who, who isn't an outsider, who has a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and even uses the proper designation of Lord when referring to Jesus. Boy, if only my life was measured by what I knew. You should see my library. You'd be impressed. But it isn't. If only my life were measured by how many sermons I taught or how much I professed 
or how religious my parents were or how long I've been involved in this church. And, and, and Peter says, great. You can have all of that and be unfruitful and ineffective in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note, note the conditions here. Maybe I can clean this up. Look what he says. If these qualities, here's two things. They're yours, so that's important. And secondly, they're increasing. So there's one, there's two. The ideal here is that faith, faith has to be personal, it has to be yours. And it has to be growing, increasing. So, so your faith has to be yours, and it has to be increasing. It has to be the kind of thing that as it grows, it's kind of, Jesus talked about the kingdom being like yeast. As it grows, it's constantly pushing more and more of your life to the fringes. Redirecting more and more of my life away from self-interest and greed. It's constantly replacing more and more of my initial natural instincts of pride and self-will and self-attainment. Apparently, this never stops. This is increasing. Faith is increasing till it, it squeezes out more and more of what used to be central to my life. So, so the question gets, gets very direct, doesn't it? What am I doing with what I know? How long have you been a Christian? What are you doing with it? I'm not asking what you're getting out of it. I'm asking what, what you're doing with it. Can, can, it's like having a tool belt with all the tools in it and never building anything. Do you just carry the tool belt? Is my knowledge of Christ a fruitful knowledge? So the issue isn't, please, the issue isn't just, is it a saving knowledge? That's not the issue in this text. The issue in this text is, is it a working knowledge? In a way that almost sounds like a contradiction, and Peter's not worried about that. He says, I need, to, I need to make every effort. Those are his words. I need to apply every effort to the work that God has initiated freely and graciously in my heart. That it takes constant monitoring. It takes constant nourishment. But, but if, if I make that effort, it's mine. I'm not a Christian because Michael and Daisy Horbin were Christians. It's my faith. It's my commitment. It's my decision. And it's growing. It's increasing. If those things are true, there are eternal benefits. The first of which is we will be experiencing constant growth and fruitfulness in our knowledge of the Lord. Our faith will be an expanding faith. Okay, point number two. Growing faith must resist he, he talks about two things, short-sightedness and forgetfulness. And I worded that negatively because 
because that's what Peter does. It seems the safest way to go at it. It's in verse 9, very next verse. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that, that he is blind, having forgotten. So there's two things. Forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. These qualities, he says. Whoever lacks these qualities, those are the qualities we read in 5, 6, and 7. And then in verse 8, he outlines the benefit of having these qualities. If these qualities are yours, he says, they'll keep you from becoming useless and fruitless. So those are the benefits. Now he's going to talk about the danger of not having those qualities. So he he looks at the positive in verse 8 and then the negative in verse 9. Whoever lacks these things. And, And Peter says there are two problems. First, he says... Blind and and short-sighted. Nearsighted and blind. Most of us can't relate to total blindness, but a lot of us know what it's like to be nearsighted, short-sighted. So you can see things close up. In fact, when it's close up, you take your glasses off. How many are at that stage of life? And and, And you can see. But things far away can't can't see so nearsighted that he is blind so so my vision's good but it's only good for things that are immediately close right in my face and so peter describes a person who who has that problem spiritually okay he he doesn't see things very far in the future they're not on his radar he sees what's on the doorstep But he can't see what's farther down the road. And because of this, he tends to live for the moment. He lives for the moment. His goals are all geared to the moment. This earthly life. He he takes care to make every effort in terms of this life. And its joys and its pursuits and its possessions and its accomplishments... He's careful about those things, but he takes no thought of eternity, judgment, work to be done in God's kingdom. That's not on the screen. He can't can't see those things. I mean, this person sees little bits of the journey, but he never sees... He doesn't live life looking at the goal, the finish line. He enjoys looking at the scenery out the window. But he's forgotten where he's going. Years ago, there was a conference, our church's conference in uh, Ottawa. My father-in-law came all the way out. And we went one afternoon and played golf in Hull, Quebec. And we drove over and we were lost. There were no GPSs in those days. He had not a clue where he was going. And I was getting concerned because he never gets concerned. And I said to him, do you, do you have any idea where we're going? He said, no, but aren't we making great time? <laughs> it's a huge problem in the Christian life. It's the ultimate example of foolishness. 
It's the biggest mistake a person can make. All the other actions of all the other fools in the world combined don't even come close to this miscalculation. We're headed somewhere. I was thinking about the great words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 2, and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. You're going to see he's going to be playing with time. He's going to be playing with time in these verses. We are God's children now. What we, what we will be, okay, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be, future, like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And this is the only verse, this is the only verse in this text that works in the present. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Present tense. There are many things still in the future. They aren't here yet. What we're going to be, when Jesus is going to come back, what we're going to be when Jesus comes back, what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. They're not, none of those things is here yet. And, and the reason we're being forced, John forces us to think about them, is obvious. It's this. Things not in your present field of vision probably won't seem as important to you as they really are. Everybody get that? Things not in your present field of vision probably won't seem as important to you as they really are. Other things will seem more important. Why? Well, because you can see them. They're clear. I have a taste for those things. These other things? I... And so John calls me to start seeing these things right now. I mean, make every effort, Peter says, to look at these things. You can't live wise if you don't see wise. It's the mark of the person who has his destination in view. He knows Jesus is coming. He thinks about it every day. He keeps this hope alive in his heart How do you know he's thinking about it? How do you know he has this faith in his heart? Well, he recognizes he has no time to waste. Every second counts. He purifies himself. He makes every effort. He labors to keep his life clean and pure. But here's the thing. Not just because he wants to be a better person. Oprah does that. No, This person does it because he knows where he's going and he's constantly getting ready for Jesus' return. It's different. All sorts of people want to be nice. John is writing about being ready. There's a second thing Peter warns about. So short-sightedness. Things off the radar screen, they don't seem as as important as they really are. But the second thing he warns about is forgetfulness of past sins. It's in that last part of that ninth verse. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten. What did he forget? That he was cleansed from former sins. Not only can this person not see forward to the end of the age and the coming of Jesus, but he he doesn't look back properly either. He doesn't look forward properly, and he doesn't look backward properly. He's he's somehow missed. See that cross on the wall? It's up there every week. And it's easy to come in here and see it and not get what it's about. That's what Peter's writing about here. He's, He's forgetting the whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus died on the cross. He doesn't get what Titus 2.14, who gave himself, that's the cross, right? Gave himself to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you get careless, you start to think that all was, that was accomplished on the cross was forgiveness. Just forgiveness. And, and no argument from me. They think of their lives as just one perpetual state of having all their moral concessions just prepaid by Jesus. Like, like you get a card and you go into Wonderland and it's, it's all paid on there in advance. You can go on all the rides for free. And there's people that look at the cross as just, just, it's just forgiveness. Just forgiveness all the time. They actually think they can live their lives pretty much as they please. And God's obligated to forgive. Look at the cross. And so Peter... Peter says there's there's a way of tragically forgetting that people people don't just get forgiven for past sins. They They get cleansed from former sins. Cleansed from. Cleansed from. Not just forgiven for, but cleansed from. 1 Peter 1, 9. One of my favorite quotes comes from Lewis Carroll, who famously wrote, It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. That's what Peter's talking about. You can talk about forgiveness of sins, you can partake of communion, you can be baptized, but, it, but unless you keep the purpose, the purpose of forgiveness before you, unless you stay close to the cross and remember the foulness, the ugliness of all sin, unless you live every moment with some idea of being bought, purified from former sins, you're going to forget. We don't forget about forgiveness. We need forgiveness. 
what we forget about is that we've, we've been cleansed from those former sins. That Jesus died on the cross to purify a people who are zealous for good works. And he says, Peter, as he writes to the church, he says, you forgot this. You got a big chunk of the cross that you don't think about anymore. The Bible makes this uh, living issue at every communion service. Paul is clear about the connection between past forgiveness and present purity. Look what he says in Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, 14. Talks about himself. Far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far be it. Yeah. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then strangely he doesn't say a word about forgiveness. By which. This by which. Refers to the cross. What about the cross? Well by which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. See that's, that's the part Peter says. You just forget this. You forget this. A glory in the cross, Paul says, not just in the sense that I'm happy to be forgiven. I glory in it in the sense that I recognize that through the cross, I've been purified from past sins. I don't live there anymore. My relationship to the world around me, that's what he says, my relationship to the world around me is totally different than before I encountered the cross. The cross changed my relationship to the world and the world's relationship to me. That's what he says. It's all different now because of the cross. Three, I'm almost done. If you apply all diligence in adding these virtues to your faith, you will grow in assurance and stability. You see it in that 10th verse. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election, there's the word, sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Aren't those last four words about the best thing you could ever read? The subject Peter's dealing with in this verse is certainty. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So he's talking about how I can be um, absolutely sure and certain. A deep assurance about my faith. Salvation by grace. Here's something maybe you didn't know. Salvation by grace is free. Assurance is not free, never has been free, never will be free. Look at these references. Don't take my word for it. Here's three that I'll put up on the screen quickly. By this we know, there it is, that we have come to know him, and then the condition. If we keep his commandments. Well that's just one Pastor Don. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure, there it is again, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Same thing. Assurance. Assurance is tied to obedience. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Assurance and action. Loving the brothers. Let me do one more. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So I could add passage after passage after passage. I'm not talking about earning salvation in those books. I'm talking about how we have assurance. You do not get assurance just by kneeling at an altar and praying for it. You get assurance by obeying Jesus in everything you do and repenting immediately when you fail. That's where assurance comes from. God loves us too much to allow us to feel saved when we willfully act unsaved. I said willfully act unsaved. Assurance is the right of people who walk in the light, who renounce the flesh, who obey Jesus at all cost. So Peter says you add these virtues to your faith. And here's what happens. You'll, you'll know. It'll resonate. Last point, four. Apply all diligence to add these virtues to your faith and you'll find God's grace adequate when life on this earth fades away. Last reference. For in this way, it's adding those virtues, diligently making every effort. There will be richly provided for you, richly, I like that, Richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me sum it up this way. In verse 8, Peter talked about people who were short-sighted as they lived on this earth. And forgetful that they had been purged from those sins. So, people who are short-sighted who can only see things close up and don't see the destination. They don't think about the destination. Now look at the comparison. There comes a time, doesn't there, of of entrance into the eternal kingdom. Comes to everybody. The fact that Peter's not just talking about being saved, that kingdom is backed up by the fact that the entrance is still in the future. There will be richly provided for you. So here's the folly of this short-sighted man. He's not thinking about the one thing coming at him that is unavoidable and final and decisive. He has to die. He has to leave all his treasures, all his loved ones... He has to stand before God and there won't be anybody else. He has to stand all by himself. That could be frightening. 
It'll be too late to change anything then. And then Peter describes those who are, who are diligent in their faith. It's yours and increasing, Peter said. He says an entrance, an entrance will be richly provided. So, so that death won't be the taking off on some uncharted voyage. It's not drifting into the unknown. Here's a person, knows where he's going, a point of entry. A point of entry is ready. Because he's been making every effort, verse 5, to supplement his faith. It's his personally. It's growing. It's increasing. He's already been embracing everything about heaven and eternity. He's been meditating on it. He's been setting his affections on things above, even before they got here. So Lewis Carroll was right. It is a very poor sort of memory that only works backwards. One of my favorite writers, he's died in 1968, and I'm not recommending him to anybody. It's just a certain taste you have to have. One of my favorite writers is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to these words. He talked about this very verse in his uh, sermons from 2 Peter. And he talks about abundant entrance. Listen to this quote. Abundant entrance. What does it mean? I think it means something like this. The Christian who has responded to Peter's appeal, who has been giving all diligence to living a full Christian life, does not die full of regrets at his failures and shortcomings. Rather, he says with Paul, I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown. That's the way a Christian dies. He has been giving his diligence. He has been living the life. He does not feel that he has been wasting his time. He does not stop and say, oh, if only I could go back. There are no bitter regrets. He is sure of abundant entrance. It's a wonderful thing when you get to the place where you're in God's hands. You've kept the faith. I I go down, I've mentioned before, I visit my mom. Went down this past week. She doesn't know me at all. Uh, she talked to me for quite a while. She said, God bless you. That's the first time she said that in a long time. Sometimes she says, I'm tired, go away. There's, there's all sorts of different responses. And I sometimes buy her, she likes Kit Kat chocolate bars. And once in a while, I, Rini and I pick one up and I go into her room and I put it on her night table so she can have it as kind of a snack. And her Bible's there and I can tell it hasn't been open for ages. My mom my mom wouldn't be able to comprehend that. Mentally, she's in a very, very sad state. But it's an interesting thing to me to see the way she, she lived her life. See, I, I, I said goodbye to mom a long time ago. But she lived her whole life buried in her Bible and, and just uh, that kind of a... To see her... She was always keeping the faith, keeping the faith. And now she can't keep the faith. There's just no way she can. See, now what's happening is God is, God is keeping her. So, so she's probably not thinking about God much. 
I doubt that she sits and ponders justification by faith. She can't do that anymore. She did, but here's what happened. There's an abundant entrance for her, and, and God has her, even though she can't hold on to him. You get what I'm saying? That's, that's where you want to get to. If these qualities are yours, have you made that kind of a start? They don't just seep into you. And if they're increasing, my goodness, I think about my own life. When I think about all of the opportunities we have for growth and how long I've been following Jesus, I thought about it as I was singing right there in that chair this morning. Dawn, is it still happening, like growing, growing, growing? God help us, eh? God help us to keep moving in that direction. Let's pray together.